Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 19. A Refuge of Lies. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the new members of the House of Lords who help keep this podcast going. The Marquis of Arbroath, Stefan Mensikov, Tabitha Abertz, Countess of Sandringham, Sean Platford, Earl of Winchester, Countess Corostine, Keeper of the Dogs, and Baroness Sophie is now Countess of Lewis. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free, and as patrons with earldoms or above, they can now listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we covered the expansion of the Commonwealth's navy, the state's navy, and saw how it was wielded against the enemies of the new republic. One of those enemies, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, had remained at large in the Atlantic, based in Portugal, and preying on English and neutral shipping. One of the Commonwealth's new admirals, Colonel Blake, spent the summer of 1649 blockading the royalist prince inside the port of Lisbon. His efforts risked war with Portugal and its empire, but he would not be resisted. The Commonwealth kept his fleet supplied and reinforced, despite the distance from England. Once Rupert eventually escaped from the Targus, most of his fleet was engaged at the Spanish port of Cartagena and utterly destroyed. We left him and his brother, Prince Maurice, sheltering in the French port of Toulon, unsure if Blake would follow them even there. So now we are in 1651, and as we covered two weeks ago, that means that the royalist colonies have declared that the Commonwealth had no authority over them, and then Parliament had declared that it has even more authority over them, so there. But simply declaring this didn't make it true, and so in the summer of 1651, the Council of State dispatched two fleets across the Atlantic. Thirteen ships under the command of Sir George Ayscue were sent to the Caribbean, and fifteen under Captain Robert Dennis set sail for Virginia. If nothing else, this is a sign of the naval expansion that was still taking place. Twenty-eight warships, more than half of the pre-war Royal Navy, 
was being sent halfway across the world, all without sacrificing the defences of the Commonwealth. Just as an aside, this particular expedition was reportedly financed from the seized estate of the former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. The ships to the Caribbean were sent first. Barbados was by far the most valuable colony, and the exiled planters had been lobbying the government. Setting sail in August, Askew aboard his flagship, the Rainbow, the fleet arrived off the coast of Barbados in October. Askew was advised by some of the exiled planters, who had come along on the punitive expedition, that even his thirteen ships would not be enough to storm the island. Barbados was well fortified to protect itself from foreign, and particularly Spanish, attack. The defences would work just as well against the state's navy. Instead, Askew opted to blockade the island, after he captured a Dutch trading fleet of 24 ships, which were clearly violating Parliament's embargo. The fleet was collectively worth about £100,000, and the Dutch will want that back. More later. After initially summoning Governor Willoughby to surrender the colony, Willoughby responded by denying the summons and referring to the Rainbow as one of His Majesty's ships, which was a bit rude. Over the next three months, from October until January, Askew and Willoughby fought for the hearts and minds of the Barbadian elite. Askew was attempting to persuade the planters that submitting to the Commonwealth would lose them nothing, whereas holding out was both pointless and risked repercussions. Willoughby was trying to convince the islanders that submission to the Commonwealth was submission to tyranny. The Commonwealth would block their profitable trade with the Dutch, and they could hold out longer than the state's navy could maintain the blockade. Askew's approach was more honey than vinegar. He urged the plantocracy to see sense, and understand that the Commonwealth was committed to liberty, and he promised that their estates and their rights would be preserved under the new regime. He explained that, of course, the rebellion against Parliament was just down to a few malcontents, which gave the rest of the planters an easy way out. He also warned the colony that without the protection of the Commonwealth, he was, after all, sat on a top-of-the-line warship, Barbados would be vulnerable to foreign states. He also wrote directly to Willoughby, trying to get the governor on side, by pointing out that he could have come down hard on the colony, and he was risking his reputation by trying to work this out peacefully. That said, Askew occasionally reminded the Barbadians of the alternative. He twice attacked coastal fortifications, using Scottish prisoners of war captured at Worcester, freed, paid, and recruited into the fleet. And, of course... The Battle of Worcester. Askew's blockade was in full effect when the second punitive fleet, destined for Virginia, sailed into view. That was a bit of a surprise for Askew, and at first he was worried that this was a hostile force. But this second Commonwealth fleet brought supplies, prisoners destined for indentured service in Barbados, some of which would take the state's shilling and sign up to fight, and news. And of the three, the third was the most valuable for Askew. The Battle of Worcester ended any real hope for royalists across the English world, and Askew sent Willoughby multiple letters which confirmed that Charles II's army had been destroyed, and the man himself was missing. Askew pointed out to Willoughby, quote, If there were such a person as a king you speak of, your keeping this island signifies nothing to his advantage, and therefore believe the surrender of it would be a small addition of grief to him. End quote. But Willoughby, Clinging to hope that Charles had not been captured, 
was steadfast. Askew continued to work on the other Barbadians. His problem was how to talk to them. More than once, Askew's words were copied on board and then snuck onto land to be distributed to try and win people over. Prisoners captured in the raids were brought to Askew, who informed them that the royalist cause was dead, even if Charles II wasn't. Then he sent them home, requesting that they spread the word. At least two of them did that, and Willoughby had them hanged. I specified that both sides were attempting to convince the elite of Barbados, because neither the royalists nor the commonwealth wanted to get the lower classes, certainly not the indentured and enslaved workers, involved. Barbados's strict hierarchy was far too valuable to risk social unrest. After two months, Willoughby and a few other determined royalists were unbroken, but there were many others who were beginning to waver. What exactly was the point of holding out, they asked themselves. Willoughby had promised, earlier in the blockade, that he would only resist as long as it had a reasonable chance of success, but now many were doubting that. By December, Askew was holding secret talks with leading planters who were increasingly sceptical about Willoughby's judgement. These talks progressed over several weeks, to the point that Colonel Thomas Modiford, a leader of these sceptics, promised to declare for the Commonwealth if Willoughby refused to see sense. Well, Askew once again presented his terms of surrender to Willoughby, and Willoughby once again gave them little thought before rejecting them. That was the last straw for Modiford, and on the 3rd of January he led 2,000 men in declaring for the Commonwealth. The state's navy sent them supplies and manpower, and Barbados was once again on the verge of civil war. Both sides were preparing for battle when the weather intervened. A week of rain prevented any serious movement, and it was during this downpour that Willoughby admitted defeat. On the 11th of January, an agreement was signed. It was very generous. The exiled parliamentarian planters were allowed to return, and their property was to be restored to them, and that included indentured and enslaved workers. But the royalists were to be protected from any revenge, legal or otherwise. Willoughby kept all his property too, and in direct contravention of the Embargo Act and the Navigation Act of 1651, Barbados would be permitted free trade with all nations that had good relations with the Commonwealth and self-government would be retained. Askew justified his light touch by arguing that Willoughby still controlled the majority of the island, and had the advantage in numbers, and he didn't want to damage a profitable colony. But, for his part, Willoughby was in a much worse position than he let on. His control over the colony was tenuous, and he'd had to resort to increasingly draconian policies to keep order. He'd abandoned earlier policies of freedom of conscience, and enforced the Church of England, partly as a method of sniffing out potential dissidents. Willoughby himself was, of course, not allowed to stay governor. His replacement had been selected long before Askew's fleet took sail. Daniel Searle was appointed by the Council of State, although Askew maintained control of the island until he felt matters were in hand. The reaction to the royalist coup was dramatic and severe. When the Parliament of Barbados met two months later, it violated the Articles of Surrender and voted to banish Willoughby, the Walren brothers, and seven other leading royalists. Askew then sailed on a tour of the Caribbean colonies, sounding out their loyalties. Antigua's governor was replaced by a former parliamentary officer, 
although Pistana notes that this might have been brought about by the colonists themselves, not by Aescu. The previous governor, a royalist and appointed by a royalist, was untenable, and she suggests that the bloodless parliamentary coup might have already taken place. The new governor wrote to Aescu, and told him that they had already submitted to the Commonwealth when someone commissioned by Parliament had arrived earlier. They didn't name this mysterious agent, and there weren't a lot of people with commissions from Parliament sailing around the Caribbean. It's a bit of a question mark, but nevertheless Antigua insisted that they'd submitted willingly to Parliament's agents, you don't know them, they go to a different school, and because they'd submitted willingly, how about some of that free trade that Barbados was just given? Other than Antigua, the other islands were easy work for Aescu. The governors of Montserrat, Nevis, and St Kitts were all confirmed by him, their positions now under parliamentary authority. St Kitts requested an elected assembly and protections from martial law. The previous governor, Sir Thomas Warner, who had founded the colony, had ruled with a firm hand. He'd died in 1649, and the colonists wanted to ensure their rights were protected. Aescu was happy to help. In South America, a small outpost in Suriname had also been claimed by the English after Willoughby sent a hundred men to discover it. These men had stayed, and after being ousted from Barbados, Willoughby and some of the other exiles visited Suriname. Some stayed, and one of them would later become the colony's governor. The Commonwealth had firmly secured its Caribbean colonies, with only a limited display of force. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you remember last week, in passing I mentioned how the royalist governor of Newfoundland was unceremoniously arrested and put on a fishing boat back to Britain. That promptly brought the colony back into Commonwealth control, not with a bang, but a whimper. A similar anticlimax came with Bermuda. After the colonists had forced a new royalist governor upon the island in August 1649, in the words of Pastana, the rebellion fizzled out. In January 1650, so either very soon after word of the rebellion reached England, or even before they learned of the uprising, the Summers Islands Company, which officially owned and ran the colony of Bermuda, wrote a letter. This letter arrived on the collective desk of the Bermudan government in May. It didn't demand an explicit declaration of loyalty to the new republican regime, but it took their loyalty for granted. The letter also announced that the company was appointing a new governor for the colony, one Captain Josias Forster. The Bermudans folded immediately. Perhaps the emotions of the summer had settled in the months since, and they realised that they were very isolated, politically and geographically. The Royalist Bermudans justified their change in policy on the grounds that they had only rebelled against the Republic. They'd never rejected the authority of the Summers Isles Company. Never mind that the company had replaced several of its members who leaned too royalist for the new regime's liking, they claimed they believed the company was not being politically pressured. 
The choice of Forster as governor also helped this capitulation, whether or not the company fully understood what was going on in the island. The Bermudan government sent an official letter of thanks to the company for appointing, quote, so grave and so experienced a gentleman. Forster was a previous governor and was well known. It wasn't like the company had parachuted in an outsider. Forster also didn't sweep into office with an axe to grind. He went out of his way to keep the peace, but he also didn't tolerate dissent, and he sent support to the exiled independents in the Bahamas. By the end of 1650, he could report to the company that, quote, from a tumultuous rebellious people, perfidious commanders, and rabble of a number of new-found seditious agitators, we are now brought to a people resolvedly bent to peace and obedience, a soldiery only subject to my command, and an utter dissolution of that fraternity of incendiaries to our wanted peace and government, end quote. So, imagine the Bermudan shock when, late in 1651, they received word that they were traitors. The 1650 Embargo Act had finally reached Bermudan shores, and named the island as one of the four rebellious colonies that would be crushed. Governor Forster sent word back to England on the next ship, asking whether they were still considered rebels, quote, Our conscience bearing witness that we are ignorant of any such actions or intentions in use against any power whatsoever, end quote. In February 1652, another letter from the company arrived on Bermuda's shores. This one was dated January 1651, more than a year before, and it ordered that all the Acts of Parliament that had been passed since January 1649 be adopted in the colony. These, of course, included the laws against proclaiming Charles II as king, the abolition of the House of Lords, and the creation of the Republic it called on the colony to swear to uphold the new government. Ironically, it was the Embargo Act which had delayed the instructions from the company. Bermuda had been even more isolated than usual, and it hadn't known why until a copy of the Embargo Act arrived on a ship, breaking that embargo. Once orders from the company were finally received, and it was clear that the Summers Islands Company was working with the Commonwealth, Forster immediately put it into effect, and sent word of this back to England. With the Royalists out of power for months, and the Bermudans finally showing all signs of compliance with the new regime, the Commonwealth paid it little attention. Bermuda wasn't as valuable as Barbados, nor as populated, and it appeared firmly under the control of the London-based Summers Isles Company. For the company's part, they appeared to have persuaded the Council of State to keep treating Bermuda with a light touch, or else the island might appeal to England's colonial rivals for protection. This threat doesn't seem to have been seriously considered by the colonists themselves, though. And so we turn to Virginia. When he learned that the colony had proclaimed him king, Charles Stuart, Charles II to the Virginians, wrote to the colony and renewed the commissions of the governor and the council, as was his right as the proprietor of the crown colony. He promised support to all Virginians who proclaimed their loyalty as his subjects. This bolstered an already formidable royalism. Virginia, just as Barbados and then Bermuda, became a haven for royalist exiles from Europe, as well as from the more parliamentarian colonies. The colony was, quote, the only city of refuge left in his majesty's dominions in those times for distressed cavaliers, end quote. As we've covered already, the embargo invited outrage from the Virginian government. 
Governor Berkeley spoke of the Commonwealth as pirates and robbers, and the House of Burgesses insisted that their allegiance to the House of Stuart was noble and that the embargo would be defied. These words soon had a response. Four ships arrived on the horizon, flying the cross and harp under the command of Edward Curtis at the end of 1651. These were the survivors of that second Commonwealth fleet. The rest of the fleet had been destroyed in a storm, and among those lost at sea was Captain Dennis. With the armed might of the Commonwealth off their coast, the Virginian government attempted to rally their people. Berkeley warned the Virginians that the Republic threatened their rights, their property, and their livelihoods. Worse, they would restore the Virginia Company, and prevent them from trading their goods with whoever they pleased. Curtis responded to these claims with his own propaganda, denying that the Commonwealth had arrived to shackle the rights of Englishmen. In his report to Parliament afterwards, he described how Berkeley had built a refuge of lies, a biblical reference that all involved would recognise. The population of the colony had been led astray by Lordian priests, and Berkeley had persuaded the militia to stand by him, and won the support of 500 Native Americans. A small army of about a thousand men was at Governor Berkeley's command. With the fleet anchored in the Chesapeake, Curtis sent a demand to Berkeley, calling on him to submit to the Commonwealth. His rejection was almost inevitable, and the fleet prepared to bring the colony to heel by cannon and by sword. Except the response he got wasn't a rejection. In fact, as Curtis reported later, it was somewhat milder than was expected. Submission was offered, though with some conditions that they expected the Commonwealth to stick to. The House of Burgesses sent its army home and opened up negotiations with the state's navy, and on the 12th of March 1652, Virginia had officially accepted the authority of the Commonwealth of England. What just happened? Virginia was as royalist as it came. Berkeley was devoted to the Stuarts, the House of Burgesses was firmly behind him, and they had a substantial military force with native allies. And yet, with less violence than Barbados, the oldest English colony in America had capitulated. Well, for starters, Virginians were not as united behind the king as their leaders had claimed. The planter elite was divided, as in Barbados. George Ludlow, a relative of Edmund Ludlow, was described as having led a faction within Virginia which favoured surrender, and though he had not led this faction to war, unlike Modiford in Barbados, the colonial government had to have known of this faction, and the danger civil war posed. Just like in Barbados, Virginia had a large indentured and enslaved workforce, which could take advantage of any civil war between the English. Secondly, Virginians were quite well informed. They knew that Charles II had been defeated at Worcester, and that England had not been reconquered. They also knew that Barbados had surrendered, and Barbados was a much more defensible colony than Virginia. If they hadn't been able to withstand the Commonwealth, what chance did Virginia have? Thirdly, Virginia was not as defensible as other colonies. There was a large militia, but their fortifications were not as formidable. And fourthly, even if they had held out, resisted the Commonwealth, weathered the blockade, and pushed back any land invasion, what then? They were already the last remaining outpost of royalism. The fight for the crown was, for now at least, over. 
far better to accept the generous terms offered than fight an impossible fight and risk the loss of their lives, or worse, their property. Plus, the terms of surrender were pretty lenient. In return for the colony's leaders swearing to uphold the Commonwealth as constituted without a king or house of lords, Curtis dealt Virginia a very generous hand. Berkeley's honour was appeased by a condition which allowed him to send an agent to the exiled king to apologise for the surrender and explain the circumstances of it. Royalism wasn't forbidden, at least for a year and if discussed privately. The Book of Common Prayer and pre-war Church of England services were allowed to be conducted for a year. There was a general amnesty, and most importantly for many of Virginia's elites, they were permitted free trade along similar terms as Barbados. Curtis promised that Parliament would confirm all the terms, and he left two commissioners, who were both Virginians, behind to ensure that the colony transitioned from rebel to loyal. One of those commissioners, Richard Bennett, became Virginia's new governor. But the Chesapeake wasn't just home to Virginia. To that colony's north was Maryland. Maryland had not been named as a rebellious colony, and Baltimore had managed to convince the Council of State that both he and it were loyal. The Commonwealth was issuing licenses for merchants to trade with Maryland. It wasn't part of the embargo. And yet, the commission to reduce Virginia to submission used both Virginia and all the plantations within the Bay of Chesapeake. Now, that might have just been an oversight, but Pistana notes that if it was deliberate, then Baltimore's enemies in the government, quote, may have arranged the imprecise wording to justify an assault on the proprietary, end quote. And it just so happened that one of the commissioners was an enemy of Baltimore. They travelled north to the colony and deposed Governor Stone and his council, on the justification that they were governing in the name of Lord Baltimore and not in the name of the Commonwealth. It appears to have been a bloodless coup and a short-lived one. Once Stone agreed to govern as the commissioners saw fit, he was returned to power. But that was not the end of Maryland's troubles, as we'll cover another time. Other than the four rebellious colonies we've covered today, the rest of the English Empire maintained its passive acceptance. Either they were known to be sympathetic to Parliament, such as the New England colonies, or they were accepted as loyal, simply because they accepted the new status quo. Individuals known to be royalists were removed from their positions, Berkeley retired, not quite quietly, Willoughby sailed away from the Caribbean, and Deputy Governor Green, who had proclaimed Charles when his boss was absent, was barred from office by Lord Baltimore. The militias of royalist colonies were new-modelled to ensure loyalty to the new regime, but beside the deposition of certain royalists, the Commonwealth's new imperial system was nowhere near as autocratic as the 1650 Embargo Act had indicated it was going to be. Even the colonies which had rebelled were treated very leniently. Next time, we will cover the end of Prince Rupert's naval war with the Republic. With the end of the last bastions of royalism, the Commonwealth's internal enemies are defeated. Now, London looks across the English Channel at a potential external enemy. Another naval power, with an empire of colonies and trading outposts across the world. Because the Dutch were getting really annoyed with the English. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bracewell, David Braswell, the Marquess of Hull, Steve Cloutier, and the Earl of Chatham, Christopher Wood. 
Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. Thank you to everyone who has left reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And for other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.